Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, July 8, 2010, and our special guests tonight are Ted Coldery and Kim Ferrisberg. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Nice to have it. So Ted uh, and Kim, this is really exciting for me. I really look forward to this particular interview. Sure appreciate you taking the time to be here tonight. The interview series is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate and the LearnCentral.org social network for educators that we provide for free. I know there's been a lot of buzz about Illuminate in the last 24 hours because of the announcement that Illuminate's been bought by Blackboard, but I promise that we will not get into that tonight, although I will blog on it a little tomorrow. Fascinating uh, 24 hours for me, if, as you can probably imagine. Uh, we have announced our Global Education Conference coming up in November globaleducationconference.com, November 15th to 19th. This is multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks, and all for free. So we hope you'll come to the website and uh, find ways to participate. The first day we announced that we had 1,400 signups. We're really excited about this and think it should be a terrific event. Coming up on our interview series, actually Saturday, the Classroom 2.0 Live show will be an issue review show that I'm going to attend and participate in. Talk about EduBloggerCon, OpenSourceCon, Bloggers Cafe, and lessons learned from all of those activities and from other formal sessions uh, at ISTE. Hope you'll join us if that's of interest to you. Uh, next week, uh, CK12.org and EDU 2.0. Uh, representatives from both those organizations coming on the week after James Bach on secrets of a Buccaneer scholar, Lawrence Peters on global education, and much, much more you can see there. Thanks to Steve Bloom and Associates. They do provide a little bit of a book budget for me, and it is much appreciated. Um, if you have missed the session, and actually the, the session last uh, Tuesday with uh, Heidi Hayes Jacobs isn't on that list, but it is up and posted right now. Uh, but all of our sessions are posted and recorded, and uh, hopefully they're of value to you to listen to afterwards. Okay, we are in the new version of Illuminate. This is version 10. It's pretty much the same. If you have been in this, you know, it looks like we're not in version 10. We're still in, we're still in version 9.7. So skip that. But if this is your first time at Illuminate, it is an interactive environment and uh, participative, and we hope that you will participate. We're going to give you a chance to do so right now. I'll talk you through any participation that you need. I will say that I find it easier to go up to View Layouts and to switch to the Wide Layout. So View Layouts and switch to the, oh, Maggie, you're in 10 as well? Interesting. I wonder how it's possible that I could be in 9.7 and you'd be in 10. Wow. Okay, well that's one for mulling over later. This is a map of the world and you can now participate. Look to the left of the map for a wand with a red star. Click on that and then click on the map. So Ted, you can't see this. But we have a smaller group tonight, and everybody appears to be in the United States. Feel free to shout out where you're listening from. And wherever that is, or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad that you've joined us. And you know, I do think I'm in 10. It's just that the icons along the top look too familiar. Well, Kim, I didn't realize you were in Orange County. Ted, yeah. where are you? I'm in St. Paul. 
Oh, and it looks like we have someone from South America, or that was a tease there. <laughs> uh, probably Lars Johnson. Yeah, probably. Yeah, there you are, Lars. Okay, so t Ted and Kim, uh, would you each take a minute and kind of give a little bit of your background and uh, what's brought you to um, education evolving? And then maybe, Ted, if you would uh, spend a little bit of time talking about the actual organization. Well, um, I was a newspaper reporter uh, who uh, got more interested in the issues than in the operation of the newspaper and I drifted off into public affairs and spent uh, you know 10 years um, or so uh, running a public policy study group in the Twin Cities metropolitan area and then spent most of the 80s around the School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota and about uh, 1980 I began to get drawn into the education issues uh, um, in a task force that uh, then Governor Cui had started, and you know we just kind of gradually began to work more and more with um, uh, the state policy issues in uh, Minnesota, and things began to move very well there, including the beginnings of the chartering program in 1991, and so then it. Um, kind of gradually spread around the country. I suppose through the first part of the 90s, I was in 20, 30 states talking with uh, legislators and others about the, um, about the chartering idea. And gradually, the group of us that um, uh, had fought together and worked together on these questions here uh, formalized uh, uh, not really an organization, but a project that we came to call Education Evolving that still does essentially uh, design work, uh, um, problem analysis and policy design largely for, uh, for the states. Uh, we don't work on contract. We're not commercial. We're not academic. We're not governmental. We're not partisan. Um, but uh, we, are, uh, um, we do work a lot with, with uh, state level because K-12 education is, after all, a system that exists in state law. It can be changed only by the states. Can't be changed by the local districts. Can't be changed by the Congress. Can only be changed by the states. Kim, what would you say? Um, Kim, I'm do you want to give a little background on? Sure. I'm an associate with Education Evolving. I met Ted when I was in graduate school, and I was very interested in. Um, systems level change. I was at um, the Humphrey Institute for Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota and was fortunate enough to get to work with Education Evolving ever since and have since um, also started my own consulting practice where I work with um, several organizations now on bringing student and teacher voices into public policy design processes. And with Education Evolving right now specifically, I'm doing that as well as a research project looking at what happens when teachers control their work. What do they do differently when they're in charge? Thanks. Thank you both. So on Tuesday, I interviewed Heidi Hayes Jacobs. Uh, and her new book is Curriculum 21. It's actually, um, she wrote, I think, four of the chapters and there are other contributors. And it was an intriguing interview because I didn't get to ask many questions. Um, but. So I, I'm not sure I'm going to do full justice to her argument, but 
basically what she says is change needs to come and it really is the responsibility of the educator first to be this proactive agent of change. I'm thinking that you're going to push strongly back against that. Am I right? No. Well, that was an interesting answer. Okay, so, uh, so um, I would have said that from the material I read from you that the problem here is systemic rather than the responsibility of individual educators to do a better job, that the message to the individual educator, you need to work harder, really doesn't touch the core of what's taking place. Did I miss that? Well, um, yeah, let me qualify what I said there. I, I think it, it, we think it has to end up with educators uh, being mainly in charge, but it obviously does take uh, systemic changes to get the authority to do this kind of thing into the hands of educators. That's what we're currently working on. Okay, so hopefully I, we can recover from that a little and we can identify it maybe as a nuance because I think that that's what I meant, which was um, I don't think you're saying that it doesn't involve the educator because clearly that's the main message, but that to say that right now the responsibility is on individual educators in traditional environments to just work harder, that seemed to me to be contrary to what, what you were talking about. Yeah, that's right. I, we'd agree with that. That's uh, their, uh, um, um, this is not a system uh, that grants a lot of autonomy and professional authority to educators. And that is kind of a systemic problem we're trying to work on. Okay, well, let's, uh, uh, Kim, I think that's you typing, and it, we can hear you mm -hmm. just a little. If you'd like, you can okay. turn your mic off when you're typing, and, um, okay. and we won't hear that, but it's, um, it's not terrible. Um, so I interviewed John Taylor Gatto uh, about a month ago, a month and a half ago, Ted, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, with him, and I can remember reading Dumbing Us Down, you know, in the early 90s. And I think what was striking to me about the interview with him was the degree to which his story, which was so uh, extreme uh, 20 years ago, actually didn't feel that extreme and I, it, it, today. And I left feeling that there's a, there's a broader acceptance of this idea that our story about education, the story that we tell ourselves to justify how we do things, uh, there's a broader acceptance that that story is broken. Do you think that's happening? Do you think more and more people are recognizing that things aren't working? Well, I, yeah, I don't see how people can escape this conclusion. I, you know, I, I started coming to this, I said, about 1980, just a, a little before, actually, the risk report. That's 30 years ago. Um, there has been this flowing uh, ever since and, and even before this Niagara of advice pouring out books and articles and lectures and conferences and consulting and research and studies and meetings and, and, um, uh, and yet um, there is such a strong feeling that, that uh, so little uh, has progressed and has changed in any kind of fundamental way. Um, you look at uh, the changes occurring in other major social and economic systems, uh, 
you know, moving uh, with uh, with great uh, speed compared to education, it's hard to escape the conclusion that that there's just something that's that, that we're not doing right. And so we we spent a lot of our time recently trying to think about that, um, you know, and, and confronting the the kind of awful possibility that the problem is in what we all agree on. The problem is in what almost everybody takes as given so that uh, the way we're going to have to make progress is to ask some very hard and in a sense uncomfortable questions about a lot of the things that um, most people for a very long time have uh, not called into question. Um, I can, my, my observation of this, and you know, I, I, I never, um, I didn't start as a, as a teacher. I, I told you I started as a newspaper reporter and editorial writer, but I've had a lot of experience watching a lot of systems. And my, my sense is that when they begin to talk about change, people almost always hold the basic givens of the system constant and want to improve within the givens. It's like a friend of ours, Kim and I work with, uh, Joe Grava says, everybody wants education to be better, but almost nobody wants it to be different, or school to be better, but almost nobody wants it to be, to be different. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, 1990-91, when the standards-based systemic reform came in, the whole idea was to do this kind of thing within the district system as traditionally organized. And uh, in more recent years, uh, as standards have come in and so forth, um, everybody holds constant the givens of traditional school. And it's, we're, just, we're just beginning to ask people more and more if this isn't our central problem. So we're, we're trying to Kim could uh, put on the screen or wherever she, whatever she does here, you know, the, uh, the directions that will lead people to a report that talks about how to get beyond traditional school. So Kim's having a little trouble with her audio, and uh, I've been typing some instructions for her to call into the, to the, the, the line as well, the telephone bridge line as well. So we'll, hopefully she'll come in in a second, but I don't think she can hear us right now. Ted, this, I, I think I told you before, this really reminds me a lot of the material that I studied in business you know, in the early 80s coming out of Deming and the total quality movement and the, the idea that um, the people most capable of solving problems are the ones who are on the front lines and you know, the, in the best form of that total quality movement that it was important to give them the tools to understand the problems and then the power to actually change things to make it better. Do you see a connection between those movements? Well, um, you know, we uh, various of us in education evolving have uh, spent a fair amount of time in the last 10 years with Clayton Christensen and his concepts of uh, disruptive change and, and uh, Around Minnesota, I've spent a certain amount of time talking with and listening to, to a productivity guru named Tor Dahl. And um, Tor wrote a very interesting piece recently. Uh, think of it this way. Think of a, of a kind of a cycling of, of uh, introducing variation 
and then reducing variation. Uh, the first part of that, introducing variation, has to do with innovation. People need to be able to try new and different things. And in most systems, they can. Um, typically, and these in Christensen's terms are often the uh, uh, the disruptive innovation. Uh, if you, my son is older son is in the the music popular music business. He's a rock record producer, and uh, based in Boston. And uh, that business has just been totally disrupted by the arrival of the digital electronics. It's just destroyed the recording uh, uh, industry. Uh, there's a new book about this that was in the New York Times last uh, Sunday in the business section commented on. Um, so, you, But at the beginning, the, the new models um, are usually pretty crude. Uh, think back to the first cell phone, or for that matter, to the first automobile or the first airplane, the primitive. And so, and, and usually a lot of people try a lot of different models, and then over a period of time, uh, people try to improve them and perfect them, and the ones that, that don't prove out very well gradually drop away, and the model gets improved. So you go through a whole cycle of, of, um, of the quality improvement. That's the Deming part of it. But the Deming part of it has to be balanced by this, the other part of the cycle that that's innovation that introduces new and 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 even radically different models. In, in where we are in K-12 and the education reform at the moment, we're we're just we're still in the standardizing. We keep trying to standardize, 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 uh, figure out, and we we are not innovating. And we're. This is this is really kind of where it's going wrong. We've devoted a lot of our time and energy to thinking about how you can introduce innovation into K-12 and how specifically you can make it possible for teachers, to practitioners, to be on the front line of the uh, innovating activity. So, Ted, I'm I'm really curious about this point because um, that description. Uh, really resonates with me. At the same time, my first thought is Detroit, meaning um, you know what Christensen's describing, and what I th and I think within the total quality or Deming arena, the innovation was coming from the outside, and so there was you weren't dealing with a large single structure that everybody was trying to work with in that in that single structure. And that the problem with trying to create that variation and variety and innovation in a large single structure is that it's almost impossible to get permission to do so. So do we end up looking like Detroit? Does the educational system end up being non-innovative and losing ground to outside entities? Well, that's, that's one of the possibilities. When Christensen, Christensen wrote his book called The uh, uh, Innovator's Dilemma, in the late 90s, and in, in, 19, in 2000, he wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review called Responding to the Challenge of Disruptive Change. And this is where the dilemma comes in. You have, a, you have an organization that's built on the old model, that's committed to the old model, that has all of the elements of the old model deeply built into its value system and into its processes, and along comes something that proposes to change it. You know, how do you deal with that? Now, it, this is really interesting because um, 
Christensen's example in that Harvard Business Review article was discount retailing. And his principle, right in the front first page of the article, was the story about Dayton Hudson Corporation, which for years was our big local department store company. And Clay said that, that in 1960, I think there were something like something over 300 full-line department store companies in America. Today there are 12. And only one made the transition. Only one of the old kinds of department store companies made the transition successfully into discount retailing. And that was Dayton Hudson. Now the question is, how did they do it? Um, they did not do it by trying to change their department store. They left their department store alone. They set up a completely separate company called Target Stores. And it was separately and independently of the department store company, um, although they were run by two different brothers in the same family. Um, Target Store began to build up its discount operation. Uh, in time, Target became the largest part of the corporation. Eventually, uh, the company changed its name to Target. Ultimately, they sold the department stores to Marshall Field and currently after that to Macy's. And uh, today the whole company is uh, Target, which is sort of Walmart's principal rival. Now, this, is the, this was a successful response to, disruptive, to the disruptive innovation represented by the discounting model. Now, as the digital electronics and all of the different kinds of education and learning that it makes possible comes into education, the challenge for the district system is going to be, uh, uh, do you want to uh, uh, fade away like a number of the department stores that, that couldn't respond, or do you want to succeed in this new venture? Uh, and, and in the way that uh, by doing the kind of thing that Dayton Hudson Corporation did in developing uh, Target stores. We've done, this is why a year or so ago we worked with the Minnesota legislature to develop um, a new schools, a, a, a new law that makes it possible for districts and teachers in districts while remaining in district employment and union membership to begin to develop new and different schools within the district framework. And this is what we're now trying to spread to other states and trying to develop and, and uh, grow here with some success. You have to take a look at what the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers is doing. So I'm curious, and Kim, I'm hoping you can hear us. Are you still on the line? I can hear you. Oh, good. And I hope you'll jump in when can you, you hear me. When, yes, we okay. can hear you. So I'm curious about the, I mean, we, we see a lot of examples, Ted, of schools that have a variety of different methods, but, but are often touted as successful schools, like the KIPP schools or the MET schools. And it seems like we've had great difficulty in adopting or even being willing to look at adopting the practices from those, those other schools. Do you think that's largely because the teachers haven't been involved in the decision making and running of the schools, and that when given that option, they're going to be more likely to pull in from the good examples? Well, I think the vision that we're beginning to get is one in which, uh, uh, pretty much as you suggest, the, uh, uh, the opportunity to pick up those new and different models is something that is in the hands of the uh, 
formally organized group of uh, teachers uh, in the school. You know, I, I ought to say, I guess that that um, about 20 years ago, um, uh, a former teacher got us thinking about uh, the, the the need to professionalize teaching to be able to to have a truly professional career within the framework of public education i mean i in the early in the early 80s i i was in a little private meeting in a boardroom of some place downtown minneapolis once and one of the people there had was a principal who had just recently been president of his national association of elementary principals and and arlie said that afternoon um, to the group uh, uh, he said, very frankly, uh, my job as a principal is to motivate as much as I can for as long as I can people who are in essentially dead-end jobs. And that hit the group pretty hard. Um, but it was not an unrealistic comment about uh, the way the traditional K-12 arrangement treats teachers. It is not a professional system. So we began uh, in the early 80s trying to think about ways um, that it would be possible for uh, to expand the role and influence of teachers within the school. And the, it was the chartering system that came along in Minnesota after 1991 that made that possible. And uh, we began gradually to get a few uh, schools where the teachers formed what are essentially um, uh, professional practices, just very much like the professional practices that your doctor is in, or your lawyer, your accountant, your you know your auditor, your, your architect, your engineer, um, um, groups. Um, in which uh, the professionals run the show and have the administrators working for them. You just take the pyramid and flip it upside down. And it turned out, as we began to watch these develop in in Minnesota, that uh, that this really worked uh, very well. Um, uh, contrary to all the expectations, uh, the teachers are perfectly able to make decisions. Um, to um, organize a learning program, to manage the school and its finances, and to uh, select, evaluate, compensate, and if necessary, terminate uh, you know teachers. And uh, so we began to be really quite interested in this model. And Kim has been involved with us in in, in helping uh, get this understood around the country and uh, replicated around the country. Uh, and this is we even went out we took two teachers um, who were in schools like this and went out and had a meeting with Tony Duncan and the top staff of the US Department in Washington uh, late in April Kim so I'd be interested in having yeah, you, you can comment see on this. A, you can Good. See a, well you can see a blog post about that visit on our blog at educationinnovating.org um, the visit between Carrie Bakken from Avalon School and um, and Brenda Martinez. And, Bre and Brenda Martinez, who's um, at a TPP in Milwaukee. 
It's just, is there a particular aspect of them you want me to comment on, Steve? Well, I, I, again, it's so interesting because I read it and it really reminded me of the kinds of things that I remember trying to do in business, again, in the early 80s. And when we gave groups this autonomy to improve things and do better, one of the hardest things, which was letting people go, actually ceased to be a problem because people pretty quickly figured out that they didn't fit in that environment and they sort of self-selected out. And that really popped out to me in that particular article. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. You know, it's, um, but this is, this is a really hard thing for districts to do. The, uh, the, 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 the control imperative is very strong. I, I remember in the early years when we were talking about school-based decision-making, when it was actually more a principal's idea than at that time a teacher's idea. I went to a meeting of um, school superintendents and um, I actually took down to the meeting a former CEO of a company around here who in his time had, had really decentralized his company based, based on the philosophy that you just uh, expressed, Steve. And one of the superintendents said to him, uh, "But if we let other pe if we let other people make the decisions, some of those decisions will be wrong. And how can we permit that?" Here we have this great. You have to stop and. It feels like we have. You have to stop and think about right. that for a while. Well, it feels like we have some um, some sort of standard barriers to this kind of a change. You know, one of which is you hear constantly, "Will it scale?" or "Is it equitable?" or um, can it be standardized? And I, I'm kind of curious because it feels as though we just sort of accept those as givens, but in many cases, th they don't make sense. It doesn't make sense that we don't allow failure because without failure, you can't have success. Yeah, that's right. You know, one of the, I'm increasingly in, inclined to feel, Steve, that one of, the, one of the things that's been a real blockage to progress has been the notion that if we can, that we, first of all, we need to find the right answer. And then obviously when we have the right answer, we can't not make everybody do it. So we have this notion of change being comprehensive or as everybody likes to say, systemic. And the sooner, you know, and the faster, the better. You know, this is not the way most systems change. Um, the way, think about the automobile system, the aviation system, the computer system, the telephone system. Um, what ha the way they change is that they open. And somebody then is able to introduce some kind of innovation, some kind of new product or process. Nobody has to do anything. Nobody has to adopt it. We don't try to coerce people into adopting the new model because somebody has evaluated it and said it's better. We, the two, the old model and the new model run along side by side for a considerable period of time. The only part of the deal is the, the people who prefer the traditional model are welcome to stay with that model, and many do. I still, right behind me as I sit at my desk, I have a typewriter that I still use occasionally. All right? but, but, the, but the deal is that the people who prefer the traditional, however, are not allowed to suppress the innovative for the people who do want that. 
So the two models go along for a period of time, and gradually people move from the old to the new as they decide in their own good time that they're ready. And eventually the transition is completed. We've just completed a transition from analog television to digital television, right? We've pretty well completed the transition from horses pulling plows to tractors pulling plows. Uh, other transitions, like from typewriters to computers, are you know, well along. Uh, this is kind of the way it changes. And the question we're starting to ask more, we're asking more and more, trying to press more and more, is why don't we take this practical, realistic, politically sensible approach to change in education and quit trying to figure out some right way that everybody must adopt. So Kim, I, I, um, let me say something and Jackie's clapping and see if it resonates with you. So and this, this came up at, at our EduBloggerCon conference before ISTE. It feels as though we had a story of education, of how education worked. And it didn't work for everybody, but it worked for enough people that it was sort of the accepted story. And and like in that interview with John Taylor Gatto, it became clear that the story is being more and more seen as broken. And it feels like people want to replace it with another large comprehensive story, when in fact what we really need is the willingness to accept that there are multiple stories. Does that fit at all with what you end up talking about when you're trying to sell the ideas? Oh, sure. No. Sure, sure, sure. One of the, one of the people who had a lot of influence on our group's thinking was Jack Freimeyer who was not out famous and well-known. He, he came up, uh, uh, he came out of the Second World War as an infantryman. He went into uh, education. He was, I don't know, a teacher and a principal. And then he went over into higher education. And for a long time, he was professor in curriculum and instruction at Ohio State. And then he spent the last 15 or 20 years around PDK at, in, you know, in Bloomington, Indiana. So he spent all his life in curriculum and instruction. He was never a big deal in the policy kind of world. But uh, about 10 years ago, he was here, and he spent a couple of afternoons talking with our group. And he made more sense than, than anything I've ever heard. He, he said, look, um, um, if, if, if young people want to learn, they probably will. If they don't want to learn, you probably can't make them. As a, as a result, he said, Every, all the effort to improve learning has to begin with motivation. And then he said, motivation uh, varies from student to student. Different thing, different uh, young people are interested in different things. Um, uh, and so the the critical skill for the teacher is to adapt the learning to those differences that the teacher sees in the real students he or she actually has enrolled. Now this again, see, is why we think uh, the authority needs to reside with the teachers, because there isn't anybody in the system who knows the students except the teachers. The board doesn't know the students. The superintendent doesn't know the students. The legislature doesn't know the students. The Congress doesn't know the students. Only the teachers know the students. 
So uh, then you begin to ask yourself now, does do we have school organized today in, in such a way as to maximize student motivation is? For that matter, do we have school organized today in such a way as to maximize teacher motivation? Everybody who thinks school is perfectly designed today to maximize student and teacher motivation, raise your hand. You know, and there won't be anybody. There won't be any hands go up. This, this, it is not. It is not. The whole strategy is not oriented around motivation. It's oriented around, I don't know what else, accountability or something or punishment. Uh, but it's it's. It's not, it's not, we would do things very differently, and I could talk about this, if we were started out with the idea, as Jack Freimeyer said, to, to maximize student and teacher motivation. I think it's important to note, too, that there's, <clears throat> excuse me, that there's demand for this. Um, Public Agenda had a survey in 2003 and asked a question to a national sample of teachers saying, how interested would you be in working in a chartered school run and managed by teachers? And the interest is pretty startling. It is 58% of teachers said they would be somewhat or very interested. 65% um, of the under 5-year teachers said that and 50% of the over 20-year teachers. And William Ucci has a, has a book out recently called The Secret of TSL where he documents how when um, teachers started to be given more control in Boston, for example, in the pilot schools, they, um, they expected almost no one to want to do it. And in fact, the demand was off the charts and the same thing in, in other areas where this is happening. So um, it's you know, also something where it's a different story for students and it's a different story for teachers and the way they work. Let me let me just touch on the student side of it. What would you do if uh, one of the things? Again, I, I talked earlier, you know, about the givens, the thing we take for granted. Um, one of the things that absolutely fascinates me is the way school is illustrated uh, in the media. Uh, it almost always shows a class, a room with a teacher. I mean, the thing that really fascinates me is a Microsoft ad. Which of all things is you know promoting computers? There is no computer to be seen. You're in a classroom. There is a blackboard, not a green board, not a white board, a blackboard. There are seats and students. It is a classroom, and and the the the, we, the notion is is of is a class. It's what Ted Sizer used to call batch processing. Uh, the class is, uh, you know, 30 students and an adult. It's kind of like a bus rolling down the highway. Um, the adult uh, shows the students things as the bus rolls along, um, but it goes too fast for some and it goes too slowly for others. And if somebody sticks up her hand and says, uh, "Couldn't we stop here for a little bit?" and because this really interested me, I'd like to explore this further. Uh, can't do that. We got to keep on going because if we don't get to Des Moines by five o'clock tonight, we aren't going to get to Kansas City tomorrow morning. So, one of the things we started to talk about is is uh, uh, breaking up the course and class system and individualizing, personalizing, customizing learning in ways that the digital electronics uh, uh, now make possible. I'm I'm invited, for example, to a meeting in uh, in August. Um, out in Boston, put on by the software industry 
by the chief state school officers and by ASCD. And it is all about personalizing learning for students. And we're clearly on the edge of this innovation. But again, we need we need to find, um, and this is where we come back to, to this strategy, political strategy that we refer to as the split screen. Uh, just let those who are ready to do that do that. Don't make everybody do it, but don't let the people who don't want to do it suppress the personalization for the people who do want to do it. So here's what I've heard that's been interesting to me, and I will tell you that the Freimeyer article you sent me was the one I marked up the most. But that's a vision of education or a story or a narrative that really appeals to me. What I hear you saying, though, is what we need to allow is we need to allow for that and other visions to take place. So it's not really specifically that story, although it really is attractive to me and to you. It's more the opportunity to allow different ways of teaching and learning to take place. Because maybe at a kid's school, they're not going to agree exactly with that. But there will be a lot of people who want their kids in a KIPP school. Yeah, I think the, the, the touchstone for all this is um, when you don't know for sure what to do, typically what we do is to try or let people try a lot of things. Um, so the touchstone has to be um, uh, variety, differentiation, um, there just isn't any way to do it. The, the, to, to come into the current scene where people are so different and students are so different and adults have so many different ideas, beliefs, values, and ideologies and try to impose some one um, model on the whole country, the whole state, the whole district. Uh, it produces nothing but conflict. This is what is not getting us anywhere. That's what I said at the beginning. We've, we've got to figure out, I'll say this, I was in a meeting some years ago in, in, out in New Jersey and, and um, people were going on and on talking about the good things that aren't being done that ought to be done and the bad things that are being done that ought not to be done. And this discussion went on for about an hour. And finally I stepped into it and I said, look, look, look what we've been doing here for the, for the last hour. Um, uh, we've been talking about the bad things that ought to be stopped and the good things that ought to be done. And in all that time, nobody has disagreed with anything. And I'm willing to bet that all of us in this round this table have heard it all before. Now what does this tell us? And, and I said, surely it tells us that, that there's something that's causing the bad things that ought not to be done and that's blocking the good things that ought to be done. Why don't we find out what the blockage is and fix that? It seems to me that if that would be a more productive um, line of policy than the one we're on today. But don't we have to be careful that, um, I mean, in particular with that Jack Freimeyer material, don't we have to be careful not to justify the variety as ultimately leading us to one new big solution, but be willing to say, you know, at some level, people are going to think differently about education. 
you know, a Jewish educator. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't, yeah, I shouldn't have led, led you, I shouldn't have suggested or let let you think that that after trying a variety of things, we come down on on one. Uh, that's not right. I mean, people are going to continue to be um, continue to be different, and and um, you know, I, I went out recently and I talked to. Uh, uh, Dr. Bottoms out here, who runs ICSI, the Institute for Clinical Systems Research, and I was talking to him about this um, this idea of evidence-based practice, uh, because this is a big thing in medicine, just like it's a, a big uh, topic of discussion now in uh, in uh, education, and. Um, uh, you know, he 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 was very uh, based on his work in medicine. He was he was cautioning, he was very much cautioning me away from the idea that um, research, evidence-based research, is the results of this kind of research um, are going to tell us uh, some kind of one right way. Uh, and he just said two things, which are just perfectly common sense. One is people are going to keep on innovating, so new kinds of best practices are going to be developed all the time. It's not a static thing. Secondly, he said uh, uh, people are different. Uh, things, some things work for, and he's talking medicine now. See, some things work for one patient and don't work for another. And you got to believe that people differ uh, with respect to edu differ in their you know, aptitudes and interests and abilities more than they differ in their anatomy and physiology, right? So yeah, the, the there will be variation and the innovation should continue. But again, back to the fundamental here, we really think that that it's time uh, to 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 be to move with this. Uh, um, to begin to introduce innovation into K-12, um, except that this is a variation. These variations will distress some people who think in terms of uniformity. But the, but the, we just have to do that. Among other things, uh, K-12 is a is a system that is not economically sustainable. Uh, the cost increases are remorseless. The 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 revenue increases are seriously constrained, and the net result is that the system, the program is deteriorating slowly, slowly, slowly all the time. And the innovation has to deal with this this problem of the economic um, sustainability of K-12 just as much as it has to deal with the uh, uh, with increasing the the, the learning of the students. So let's move to Q&A. To ask a question, you can raise your hand, which is the hand icon with the green up arrow at the bottom of the participant window, uh, or you can type it in the chat. Um, and while we're waiting for that first question, Kim, I want to ask you a question. Does What stories are resonating with the people you talk to? What, what, what are you telling them where they're saying, oh, I get it? Um, about teacher professional partnerships? About the whole concept here. I mean, so so Ted says we need to introduce innovation into education. Does does that ring bells for people? Mm -hmm. What is it when you say to people, 
X, Y, or Z, that they really light up and they say, oh, yeah, I would get behind that? Um, I think, you know, I think a lot of parents, particularly where I live in Orange County, California, a lot of um, parents are yearning for something different but don't really know how to put their finger on it. And so I think when um, you can back up and, and explain um, there are other ways of doing things. There are, you know, in, there, in Minnesota, for example, the story is very different. There's a lot of, um, there are a lot of options. Um, people are very disgruntled with education, so options have popped up. Here in Orange County, you know, people, there are no options. People haven't been disgruntled, but the homeschooling movement is starting to really take off because um, there aren't any other places to go other than traditional school. So when you can explain to people that um, <clears throat> there are ways to have non-traditional schools via the chartered sector or even in the district sector, um, and that they can be public, you know, publicly funded options. People, that's what when people really light up. They're concerned really about um, whether or not there's going to be a, you know, they're going to have to pay for it, and if in the homeschooling or you know in a private school setting. So I think just understanding, you know, the types of options then that exist. If you could, if once you go from the public funding side of things to what types of options exist in a place like Minneapolis um, and you, where there's Chinese immersion schools and high schools for recording arts and these are all you know, public schools. Pe that's the type of thing people want to see and hear for their children, but they just don't know to ask for it. That's fascinating. So it's the idea that there's, there, is, there are places in which there's variety, but in a public setting. Right, and then from the teacher, the teacher side, you know, I I'm 34 years old, so there's a lot of um, teachers that I know who are not in the classroom; they're home, you know, being um, moms to their kids, and they have no interest in returning. And they, um, you know, when I talk to them about the teacher professional partnership option their eyes start to light up. You mean I could have a say over what I can do in the classroom, and um, you know, how do I how do I make this happen? Is the is the first question out of of their mouths? Because here in um, Orange County, there's a lot of there's layoffs at the end of the school year every year. Um, teachers get then hired again a week before school starts. They don't um, have any. You know, they don't know which grade they're going to be teaching until the week before, and they just really want um, to have more ability to put the students at the center of the schooling and to have job security and to know um, that they're doing what they believe is the best for students. And so this option really intrigues them to come back. So that's another side um, just out and about speaking with people who aren't really into the policy side of things. So Maggie, you've raised your hand and I've given you the mic. To turn your mic on, there's a box at the lower. There you go. Um, my question is, I haven't heard much talk about where higher education comes into this. We, we are the ones who are preparing these educators to go out into this world, but um, everybody talks about change at the K-12 level. Well, what happens with higher education? Do you have any thoughts on that? What do you mean specifically with teacher education? I mean, well, what can we do to prepare our future teachers to be innovative in the classroom and to 
um, teach these children that are multitaskers and creating in different ways than, than we were brought up. And, and to, to look at changes in the institution rather than just adhering and coming in and taking on the culture of the school that they are student teaching in or they are hired into and becoming just another. But what can we do? You know, I don't, I don't myself know a lot about uh, teacher education. Um, we do have there is a there is a very strong uh, feeling you can sense now uh, that um, um, uh, good. Teachers and good teaching is kind of replacing the faith in standards as uh, the, the key to uh, improvement. And you you probably uh, um, feel this as well. The the desire to to have a, we um, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of effort to get as they to to change the the flow of people coming into teaching um, we i've i've been talk i've talked to mark tucker a little bit in the last year or so and to peter hutchinson who's now head of the bush foundation here in minnesota um, they're quite both quite interested in the in the system in um, in britain where uh, the state basically um, uh, buys trained teachers um, uh, from the uh, colleges and universities, buys teachers trained to its specifications instead of, in other words, of just providing general financing to the university to go train teachers. Uh, the state sort of uh, sets the specs and does the recruitment and brings people in. Um, you could take a look at, um, um, what did he call it? This. Um, um, Mark's um, report came out in the fall of uh, um, 06 or 07. Um, tough choices are tough times. Um, and look at the section in there. You, you Googled up for uh, tough choices or tough times. It's Mark's uh, National Center on Education and the Economy, and uh, look in there for uh, uh, the whole system scheme he lays out for uh, teacher training. But you know, a lot of it we can, again we think a lot of the key is in, in what happens out there in the K-12 system. If teaching becomes uh, a less and less attractive job and career, it's hard for us to see how. Um, uh, you're going to get into the teacher training institutions the the kind of people we all sort of want to see go into teaching. That's why we think that a lot, uh, that that the the major effort needs to be to make teaching a better job and a better career for its people. Maybe I hope that something something in that speaks to your question and helps a little bit. 
So we do have a couple of minutes still if you have a question. Uh, I'm looking at the chat and I'm and if I've missed one, please let me know. Um, Kim, did you want to add anything? Um, no, but I'm, I'm interested maybe in pursuing some of Carl's questions. Um, one was about, well, Carl, maybe you, do you want to ask it? <laughs> Is he on audio? Carl, Let's if you have a mic, uh, raise your hand to let me know and but I'll give you. It was about whether, it was about, sorry, Carl. It was about whether you could start one where a district could or a district could contract with a TPP. Could a local teacher union decide to reorganize as a professional partnership and then contract with the traditional school system to buy the services of the partnership? Ted? Oh. Um. Well, you know, I, I was going to say this is maybe a little off the point, but um, but one of the things everybody ought to uh, kind of be aware of in this context is the uh, the sort of thing that showed up last weekend at the NEA convention when Secretary Duncan went there and got such an unfriendly reception. Um, there's just a lot of tension. Um, uh, the um, uh, the unions clearly. Um, um, are uncomfortable with uh, um, the the administration pushing as hard as it is, or as they perceive it is, uh, to get uh, laws in in the states, Colorado and other states, that that in the unions' view, um, um, you know, diminish some of the um, uh, things that the unions over the years have won for their members. Um, we'd like to. We think it would make all kinds of sense for the, both the administration and the unions to come around, to come together around this idea of enlarging teachers' professional roles. Um, the, the teachers, quite understandably, uh, we think, resist the notion that they ought to be held accountable for things they don't control. They don't want to do that. I wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't want to do that. Um, so. What we've we've trying to suggest to them is a is a is cutting a kind of a new deal with teachers in which uh, teachers will accept responsibility for student and school performance if teachers control what matters for student and school performance. It seems to us uh, uh, that's a workable deal. Uh, when we look at the teacher-run schools that we know, we see that happening. Uh, when teachers do control what matters, they will accept the responsibility for success. So we could cut a deal in which the teachers get the at last, at last, the control of uh, professional issues, and, uh, and and this begins to work. Whether this can come off or not, I don't know, but it seems to us to be the way out of this uh, political stalemate. Ted and Kim, we have one more question. Do you both have time for a final question? Yeah. So Carl, I've given you the microphone. Just click on the larger microphone button in the lower left to turn your mic on. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, well, um, from the dangerously irrelevant article that I or blog post I posted earlier this week, um, there was one question that I found intriguing that was uh, the question whether or not any existing teacher professional partnership schools have 
had any experience hiring new or inexperienced teachers, and whether or not in those in that kind of environment um, there would be a, a ability for a teacher to to start their career. Kim, did you get that? The sound quality was kind of bad on that question. I'm afraid I didn't really it didn't really come through to me. I think I, I, I had trouble understanding too. I think it was is this a viable is are TPPs a good place for somebody to start their career? Is that what you made out, Steve? Sure. Well actually I think what Carl was asking, is it even possible um, for a teacher to start oh. their career there? Does it allow for that? Yes. Yeah, I don't see why not. Uh, yeah, at Minnesota New Country School in um, southern Minnesota, there are um, school they they take teachers um, for their what do you call it, student teaching, and then they transition right into the school. And they also have some training programs specifically to work in an environment like theirs. I remember though years ago. As I said, we started working on this idea about 20, 25 years ago, and I can remember at one point uh, John Goodlad uh, was here then at the, at the University of Washington, and he thought about this, and, and he said, you know, if if teaching were to be set up in this way, that is, with teachers in professional practice, uh, you know, in control of the of this operation with the administrators, he said all of teacher education would have to be changed. So that's a dramatic note to end on. I Kim, did you want to say something more? <laughs> well, I was going to add one one part too that there, you know, people in, as teachers get into this, they have different ways of um, doing things, and one arrangement is to have sort of a staged entry point. So there's teachers who are sort of apprentice teachers, just as in a law firm, you have the partners and the associates. It's, it's similar in some of these schools. So it's not that um, they just go in cold. You know, they have mentors when they get into these environments. Okay, this has been a fascinating hour. I'm clapping for both of you. Ted, you can't see it, but there's a little clapping icon coming up. So appreciate <laughs> okay. your coming on. Um, I got yeah. one final question, which is if if I was captivated by Freimeyer. Uh, there, there were some books on Amazon that he had written years ago. Is there one you recommend? Well, the one I got started on, let me look on my shelf behind me, see if I can spot it real fast, was, um, again, the, 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 the thing that you're referring to, I guess we should say, is, is on the Education Evolving website, right, Kim? Uh, you can go on the Education Evolving website and just do a search for Freimeyer, F-R-Y-M-I-E-R, and that will um, and that will uh, uh, that will come up. You can read this set of notes, which is, I think, the best thing I've uh, I've seen. Lars, would you put it up on this thing? They can see um, links said, so I'm going to have Lars put it yeah, up. Okay. Thank you, Lars. You've been our third wheel here. Yeah. I can't find the book on my shelf right now. It's one he wrote in 1962 or something like that. Jack died a couple of years ago. 
Well, I'll send you an email and see if you, you remember it. Nope. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Oh. Great discussion. Enjoyed it. Let us know how we can help uh, help move this forward. Uh, we'll stay in correspondence, and, and maybe okay. there are some That's other people yeah. you can recommend that we talk to. But thanks for taking the time tonight. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Look at our schedule. Hope there's something in the future you like, and there will be a recording of this session, so feel free to okay. pass it on to others. Have a great night. Freimeyer's Fre Fre book is Fostering Educational Change. Fostering Perfect. Educational Change. Okay. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thank you, Ted. Thanks, Bye. Kim. Good night. Thanks, Lars. Thanks, everybody else, for coming. Fascinating show. Great material. Lots of, I took lots of notes uh, with the reading material and then during the session and feel like it will make a difference for me. Hope you have a great night. I'm going to turn off the microphone, stop the recording, and then uh, do be sure to exit the session so uh, we actually can't. The, the recording doesn't process till you're all gone. So we'll look. If you see me bump you out, you'll know why. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.